Hello and welcome to Rear View, the show where we get to chat to fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew, and this is episode 46. I'm delighted to be joined by Lucas Neckerman, who is advisor, speaker, and author focusing on the topic of mobility. Welcome to Rear View, Lucas. I'd like to start off by asking, what is your definition of mobility? First of all, Andrew, uh, uh, congratulations. I just uh, saw that you have won a prestigious award, uh, the Guild of Motoring Writers uh, Breakthrough Award. So congratulations to you. Thank you very much. Uh, (laughs) Thought I'd get that in there early. Um, So what is mobility? It's a bit of a catch-all term at the moment that encompasses everything uh, automotive and transportation related. Uh, Fundamentally, it's about moving goods and people from A to B, underground, uh, on the ground and above ground. Um, and we're using it as a term to um, basically define a new future way of doing all of these things, right? Um, because these things are growing together, whether it's uh, – and, and, you know, they came in isolation. You know, the trains evolved, cars evolved, planes evolved. And now we have these – strange mixtures of things coming up where we have some difficulty in separating them, which is great. Uh, means that the various modes of transport are blending and also the way we use transportation, uh, both as individuals but also to move goods around, is changing. And, and we basically wrap this into a term called mobility. I really want to explore this later on um, because of what you said there was very interesting uh, discussing how these these different aspects have developed in isolation but have sort of come together through time but now we have the opportunity it seems to me to actually get them all to speak to each other and and work in an efficient way that you know the the car or van can do this bit efficiently whereas the train can do this bit more efficiently and it seems to me that that's this is a a really great opportunity to I'm not saying get it right because there's always room for improvement, but to really think about it properly and to give the public the best opportunity to take advantage of these things. Right. But uh, but before we get into that, <laughs> before we sure. do, uh, well, I want to go back as I always do. Are you actually interested in cars? Oh God, absolutely. I'm a uh, I'm a car guy. Okay, then this is, this is excellent because I this I wasn't so sure about because you know you, you talk people talk about mobility and a lot of it comes from organisations or people who are, who have no interest in cars and you see some of the rhetoric they use and it very clear they do not like cars but I was never sure with you because you you don't you don't speak in that way by the way I just want to make that clear if anybody doesn't follow you no um, no, no no listen I've always been a car guy I mean I you know uh, there's an American saying that from from when you're knee high to a grasshopper right so I was probably <laughs> you know five six seven years old and I was already having conversations with my dad about how you know, how much horsepower this car has and what brands are out there and all these different things and every element of the industry is always fascinating to me whether it was you know the business side of things what brand and what products are you know uh, in what brands and what are they doing with which products and right up to and including all of the kind of techie parts of the industry so yeah um uh, you know. So was it your dad that helped that along, or that's you... that's you know that's certainly true. If you, I grew up in a rural part of 
upstate New York. Um, and, and obviously, if you grow up in a place like that, you, you need cars, right? Mm-hmm. You, and, and multiple cars for multiple purposes. And beyond that, of course, my dad was a, was a car fan himself, right? So we, had, uh, we were a multiple car host household. He had a, some collector's cars. He had a 1940 Buick. Uh, we had a Lincoln convertible. And then we had, you know, the, the more utility vehicles, uh, which were, I guess today you would call them the first sport utility vehicles that were the, the, the Ford Broncos, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know remember those but there were these uh two-door f-150 based um yeah suvs uh, and those were our family cars yeah you see what you see companies like icon um doing sort of modern versions of that where they've got an old one and they've they've thrown lots and lots of money and parts at it and you say, oh that's fantastic yes it's a quarter of a million dollars that, that, that <laughs> i will admire from afar but yeah that those uh, I, I grew up in the U.S. till I was about seven. Okay, uh, and we had um, we had a Jeep, the CJ1. Uh, that was my mum's car. Sure. So I've got fond memories yeah. of uh, of America and um, the frankly ridiculously enormous cars. Uh, especially when you live over in Britain, they seem that. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. The CJ1, actually, I'm familiar with. I think we had one of those somewhere along the line as well. I had a, you know. Five six meter long, you know, nineteen mid seventies Ford Motor Company boat, pretty much. You know, <laughs> um, three speed auto on the column, five point eight liter, and you know, you you think about these engines now, right? It was this uh, five point eight liter V eight, and it put out less than one hundred and fifty horsepower. I mean, we're you know, you get that out of a out of a two cylinder today, right? But that takes quite a bit of engineering to get that little power from such an enormous block, does it not? Yeah, it's almost counterintuitive now. <laughs> I worked very hard to keep this down. <laughs> yeah. So, so did um, the car interest obviously has has continued as you grew up. When you were in school, did did you think about the the motor industry as a possible future career, or were were your interests taken in a different way? Again, I was fascinated by the industry, and I was fascinated about the the, the, the vehicles uh, around it. So I always thought of it as an option, and that didn't really materialize as a as a serious option until after university, when I actually well had my first had my first job. I actually started uh, my career at BMW. So oh, right. um, that's that's where it kind of all came together. You know, after having read piles of car and driver and road and track and auto week and motor trend and, and all of that i felt pretty well equipped to, to go work for a car company yeah what were you doing for bmw then so uh this was 1996 and uh it, it was just at the time when the internet was evolving so i had come from the u.s uh with just a, a bit of knowledge on you know the internet and at the time BMW had just literally launched BMW.de and didn't have BMW.com. So here I was, a, a young graduate from the U.S. that had just an inkling more than anybody else in the building um, on the internet. prime consultancy material there. <laughs> and, and, and you know, uh, and uh, I, I 
I worked in the team, and I uh, and I use that term loosely because there were three people um, that put together the first BMW.com, and and uh, that was my first job at BMW, and then from that, I was I was quickly hired into the company to do a whole bunch of other stuff, initially all in the field of digital media. Were they was was BMW open? to the internet then was it or was it just seen as um one of these oh well people are doing it so we're going to have to because they they come across as quite a conservative company looking from the outside um so it'd be i was wondering whether they sort of thought oh no this is the future or this is something we're really excited about or whether it was just we need to do it as part of business type well, BMW's brand values at the time were innovation, dynamic, uh, and uh, EDA, and uh, what's the other one? Uh, athleticism or aesthetics or something like that. And innovation really was at the core. So they saw this as an opportunity to bolster that part of the brand. But there were limits. You know, I went in, and again, I only know a bit more, but I'd already ordered stuff off the internet um and i you know i just asked some stupid questions so when do we start selling cars online um and And what was the look on the face when you said that (laughs) sheer horror (laughs) i can imagine (laughs) right we had just gotten you know the websites online and we started uh putting out uh if you imagine uh uh we would put CD-ROMs into magazines with car configurators and we would send, you know, millions of CD-ROMs to dealerships and all of this. And this was all very, very progressive at the time. Mm. Um, uh, But again, there were limits and those limits, to a certain extent, they still exist today, right? Because they had very, very penal and rigid uh, um, deals and contracts with uh, the dealership organizations, uh, and that really prohibited any sort of uh, online sales, other than you know um, accessories and you know uh, toy cars and things like that. Yeah, that that is an interesting aspect of the industry that uh, seems to be changing quite a bit. Um, it, it seems much more rigid in America because the, the the dealers, it's almost an industry. Dealerships on their own seems very powerful um you know if you just take a look at what tesla have tried to do in the way that they sell um but in in the uk and europe whilst they are powerful they don't seem to have that um that same power to block uh, a change in a format of selling um, so, but it but it is interesting to see that the way manufacturers are dipping their toe in it i think it was citroen recently that said that you can get buy a car online um, right. And then you right. just go to the dealer to try it out and pick it up almost. And that, so then dealers assume becoming service centers rather than dealerships. Right. And there is, you know, there's a common fate that they have, the auto industries and the dealers. And, and, and it, you can see it as a red thread that goes through the lack of mm, ambition in selling electric vehicles because electric vehicles have less maintenance to them. You can see it in, you know, the really not reluctance but the slow speed at adoption on online sales in fact i just read an article yesterday and i almost fell off my chair you know dealerships very proudly now selling used cars and i said really is this 1997 again 
and, and, and there are other elements, even things like over-the-air updates, which you would have thought uh, after Tesla had done it that every other automaker would have seen the opportunity in over-the-air updates, but uh, they've been reluctant to do it. And part of that is simply because of the pressure from, from auto dealership groups. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it is going to be tricky how that, that – well, tricky for the manufacturers, um, and hopefully we as the consumer can benefit, but how that does evolve. Anyway, sorry, I've digressed already. So, okay, so you've you've uh, you've scared people in BMW by saying, "Come on, why aren't we selling cars online?" Uh, what, what else did you get up to while you were there? <laughs> the one of the next roles I had was an internal consultancy uh, role where uh, we would take a look at uh, you know pricing propositions of the new Mini. We took a look at um, you know some product uh, uh, positioning stuff, and then I had couple of really neat roles and that's to coordinate the launch communication on um, the Z8 if you remember the Z8 and also the E65 7, uh, 7 series which didn't quite have the same uh, visual appeal as, as that other one mm. um, but that, that was that was great fun uh, really let me you know see uh, the whole the whole package uh, got to talk with a lot of the product uh, product people as well designers and um, really get engaged with the product at a more fundamental level. And when it comes to, to uh, dealing with the communication on launch, how early were you brought into the, the life cycle of those, of those vehicles, those particular models? Well, I think when you're, when you're in a company like BMW or any OEM for that matter, um, you are blessed in that you get to see stuff very, very early, uh, you know, a year, two years before launch uh, and some, in some iteration of it, just because you have to plan it. Right? You have to plan where are we going to do what, what motor shows is it going to be on, what media are we going to use, how are we going to position the vehicle, what, you know, what color is it going to be launched in what... Um, I thought that's, uh, that's dead uh, easy uh, at the moment, isn't it? Everyone just puts white. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I think at the time it was it was uh, still very much silver, and we were still breaking <laughs> breaking out of that. But I think you're right, and and we used to think white. My goodness, what a god awful color to show a vehicle in. But yeah, <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, I'm still of that opinion. By the way, <laughs> white, I'm not a fan of. I just think it washes them out. But uh, it was it was nice to see the new. Um, Lamborghini in a different color, i.e., yellow, um, yellow yes. green. That, it's not yeah. that wasn't my color, but you know it's good to see that it wasn't just in the standard white. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, when you're when you're developing the uh, the plan for releasing the models, how much time do you get with the product people, and do, when you're um, trying to bring together the the strategy? Does, do you have? Did you have a sort of overall vision of what you wanted, and then as you spoke to the people along the way, you go, "Oh, that little throwaway comment you made actually is massive. This could be really interesting for us to explore." Or was it, um, you know, how how well, how much did you adapt along the way? Is sort of, I think is probably the question I'm trying to get to. Well, I think, I think fundamentally, we're always we're always trying to tell a story. Mm. Uh, you know, if you're if you're a marketer, you're always looking for an angle or a story. And and I remember we did. Uh, I was involved, and I didn't head it up at the time. But 
I was involved in the launch of the then three series. This actually goes back now. What was that? The E46, actually. So this goes, this is two generations back. And we did a whole series, which we put into various media on the making of, because we'd had some conversations. Um, two of us had had conversations with um, engineers about, look, this is the tool that we use to test the seats. And there was this, you know, uh, artificial bum really that <laughs> you know tested the seats on getting in and out of the car for you know 20,000 30,000 times and we thought what a fascinating story and you know then there was um the the the, the passionate engineers and the wind tunnels and things like that and when you see passion in an organization i think that always makes a great story because passion is is um, is addictive. Passion is also uh, uh, something that can be transferred. You see it in the people's uh, uh, eyes, and you see it in their in their language and their body language, and, and 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 that just makes a great story. I mean, this this just brings up a bit of a theme I've been uh, sort of mulling over and discussing recently with various people, is that it's very easy to forget that. Uh, Car companies, whilst they are conservative with, they appear very conservative with a small C on the outside. Um, they are driven by people who really love what they do. Most of them, uh, yeah. Um, whether it's someone who, like you said, that is said, look, look at this tool that you know means that the seats are comfy all the time, right? Or it's um, the designers or whatever that these people are really passionate, and so many of them are actually car people as well. Um, they're not just oh, I do a product or I do this, that, that I actually really like cars as well. And, yeah, and it's, working, it, it's yeah, easy sure. to forget that that's the case. Uh, and I've been reminding myself of that through various things that have happened in the news recently. And it's, it's great to hear. And I think that you saying there that these stories of these passionate people, it's, that's a brilliant thing to get back out to, mm -hmm. to the public to go, no, no, these are designed by really, really passionate people who are trying really hard to make this very good for you, you know. There's, there's two parts to that. One is, yes, most of them are that way, or many of them are that way. And I really would like to think that, um, you know, they call the shots. Um, on the other hand, however, there is a certain blindness that happens when you are passionate, when you are... Really, when it is your life's mission to improve the vehicle's efficiency by 3%, improve the vehicle's speed by 2%, when you're trying to, you know, uh, put yet another option onto the car that's going to improve the return on sales or improve sales by not 0.2% and things like that, which people get very passionate about. But then what happens is they miss the big picture, and that's to a certain extent what's happening in uh, in parts of the auto industry. Yeah, no, that is, and that is where proper leadership has to step in, and that's I think uh, very important, particularly in in large organisations. The leadership at the various levels have to still be able to uh, get people to relate to how their bit fits into everything else, and how it's whilst it's important can't forget that it's all part of a, a giant jigsaw that goes to make the final thing right um, yeah so no that's excellent uh, right okay so you you've that's three that's three car launches now uh what, <laughs> what do we move on to next my final role at bmw was 
uh, I got to be part of a team that would shuttle back and forth between Munich and Birmingham in the UK um, because at the time BMW had, um, of course, decided to get active on its Rover Land Rover Mini acquisition. Um, for a very long period of time, it was a hands-off thing where they said, no, 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 they'll, they'll sort themselves. And then all of a sudden, someone flipped a switch and said, well, gosh, they're actually not going to sort themselves and we need to uh, get in there. But at that time, I think the ship had already sailed. So there, were, there would be flights, you know, charter flights that left at 7, 7.10 and 7.20 from Munich and, and, and would get into Birmingham. And I, I would call them the, you know, the long, not the Long Bridge Express, but the Long Faces Express because, you know, everybody on the plane was, just had these long faces, didn't really want to be headed to rainy, the rainy Midlands. And everybody who was welcoming them on the other end also had these long faces and saying, you really don't have to be here. Um, and, you know, just in the faces, you know, how I was talking about passion earlier, just yeah. in the faces of the people, you could pretty much see that this um, acquisition was was not going to work. Mm. Yeah. But um, it's interesting that the mini side of things has worked. And that's and there's a there's a real reason for that. And that's first of all, you know, they they took the passion of the mini engineers and there was plenty there um and they basically gave them plenty of resources but they also gave them um space to build a new mini uh, outside of the regular bmw and outside of the regular rover organization um so there was actual real brand value there there was passion there and then there was a product um that could slot very, very neatly into the time, but also the BMW product portfolio. Um, the thing is, a you know, fa- somewhat fast, fun, you know, pleasurable vehicle is something that BMW people could relate to. A front-wheel drive, luxurious Rover is not something that BMW people could relate to, and hence the lack of passion for it. Yeah, yeah, it's understandable. Um, okay then, so you, you're you're leaving BMW now, are you? That's right. I left uh, BMW <laughs> coincidentally, roughly around the same time that um, BMW then uh, sold off um, most of Rover, of course, uh, keeping a whole bag full of brand names, but also keeping many. I went to do BMW in the states also because I had a personal interest to get back to the states. Um, uh, so off I went to New York. And how was that? Three year. Two year, three year. It's a. It was a two year MBA program. Halfway through the MBA program, we had a an incident in New York, nine uh, eleven, mm-hmm. which of course changed things quite a bit in terms of also, frankly, job prospects and and and, and things like that. But it certainly also changed the the, the, the mindset in the U.S. and you could probably. Still see that to this day. What did you go and do after your MBA then? I was recruited by Allianz, uh, the insurance company, because mm-hmm. um, another NYU Stern alum who was working there introduced me to a fellow who would uh, then become the CEO of Allianz, and I had, uh, mm-hmm. in fact, my my interview with Michael Deakman was. Um, while moving 
we were in the back of his car service to the airport. Um, and in New York, from Manhattan to JFK, that's about a 45, 60-minute drive. So, was so it that's, about two miles as the crow flies as well as something like that? <laughs> so that's really a pretty, pretty much ideal time to do a, a job interview. And uh, on the back of that, um, you know, he said uh, goodbye to me at JFK Airport. I didn't quite know how to get back. Um, but uh, it didn't matter because, um, you know, a week later I had a job offer and, and, and then uh, I took that because it presented a really, truly good opportunity. And was that anything uh, motor related, if, if you can say? Cause um, on, and, on and off again. So okay. uh, I had a number of different roles at Allianz. won't go into too much detail. One of the, one of the things that I uh, did was um, they, I headed up um, business development for what is now known as Allianz Automotive um, or Allianz Global Automotive uh, now. So this is the relationship that insurers have with um, OEMs. And in, in, in Germany and other European countries, there's a fairly sizable business model in selling insurance via dealerships. Um, so you walk in, you buy finance or lease your vehicle and then you get the insurance right away and, and, and we were responsible for those relationships, building the product, putting up putting together pro you know, the product proposition, the uh, pricing and, and you know, all of the actuarial stuff and all of that. The way that uh, things are being said about the future, particularly with connected cars, right. insurance is becoming more and more mentioned about this. Uh, and it's obviously a, a revenue stream for for businesses and particularly for OEMs because they have to create connected cards particularly in Europe because of legislation that means that uh, if there's an accident the emergency signal um, needs to be sent out or a location beacon um, so now that now that manufacturers have been forced down the route to install that they're now obviously got to look at a way to make money off this because they've spent a lot of money in putting things in if well, there's, in, if there's in a this... dual purpose for it then great take advantage well, in this B two B to C business model, they've already they, they've always made money on it on it actually because it's it's incremental revenue, um, but it's also loyalty um, because if you can use your dealership to keep the customer coming back in, also for insurance related stuff, then you have an additional uh, connecting point. So that's something that they've done. Um, there's a lot of talk right now about. Um, subscription-based models, you know, where OEMs are offering cars that include um, so and so many miles, but it also includes all maintenance, mm. includes all insurance and all of these things. And there's various models of this. Uh, Cadillac has launched one. Volvo has launched one. And there's some people are even calling it transportation as a service. And I have to smirk at this because this has been going on for, for decades, literally decades, that you have this all-in package available to you as a consumer. Um, it's Businesses called, have been doing this, haven't they? It's called full-service leasing, right? Yes. Just, <laughs> I mean, that's the thing that makes me chuckle is these people go, oh, look at this, fantastic, you get all this product. Yeah, but it's PCP in the UK. Exactly. <laughs> it's, just, it's the same it, as it, that. It, you just, you're just ticking all the options, that's all. Exactly right, and the only difference now is that you have a variable term, or you can, you know, give the vehicle back and, and use different vehicles and things like that. But you weren't even able to do that previously; you just had to pay for it. Yeah. So it's it's amusing how we think that we're reinventing stuff, and this is actually another pet peeve of mine. Um, so there are 
all these terms uh, coming up now, you know, rail-less trains. Well, yeah, that's that's a bus. Yes. <laughs> Recently, I saw another. Yeah. There's, there's been a certain amount of Silicon Valleyisms. Absolutely. <laughs> Flying trucks. Oh, that drove me insane. Did you last see that week. one? Did you see that? <laughs> Flying trucks, also known as yeah. Guess what? An airplane. <laughs> what an invention. Uh, so I think we do need to take it with a bit of a grain of salt um, when uh, somebody comes up with what they think is a brilliant new idea. Only I think we just have to look at some, everything that's existing, change what it's called, and then we'll just go and find a bunch of venture capitalists who don't know anything <laughs> in this industry and then go say, oh, we've got these wonderful things and make it all sound very fantastic. Because yeah. that's what I swear it's being done for. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, there there is um, some very silliness going on with naming, yes. <laughs> deciding to change a name to make it sound exciting. And but that maybe that's a bit of a society thing. Everything has to be overhyped to make it to, to grab somebody's interest. It it seems as though the only way that people know how to do that is to overhype it rather than tell. Uh, going back to what you were saying earlier, tell a good story, explain it, do mm. it properly, not just do a headline. We we we're grown ups. We can cope with more than headlines these days. That's true. It's true. But good stories take time. They take time to develop, and they take time to digest as well. Uh, and if you actually do invest the time to do a good story, you will still engage people. Think about think about how engaged people are when they you know watch David Attenborough. That's it. Tells a great story one of the master storytellers, I think. Um, and people actually do take the time. But for everything else, people are, you know, you know have a Twitter-level um, attention span. Mm. And there's all kinds of biological research, uh, research as well that our collective attention span has gone down over the last decades uh, because we're multitasking, because we're not able to focus on this, that, the other thing. Um, and the best you can do is to get seven minutes of someone's attention. You remember when the sitcom was a 22-minute sitcom and now it has to be broken down into bite-sized pieces? Uh, and then on... they repeat what was said before the advert, just after the advert. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because clearly our attention span has degraded so far. And and I think there's a, there's a real danger in that. Um, uh, and it's part of what we see in the executive world as well. And part of what I do as an advisor is to just spend more time thinking um, than most executives have the time to do. Uh, it's really unfortunate. I've been in this uh, space, right? If, you, if you're heading up a team, if you're heading up a company or whatever you're doing, you're spending 80 to 90% of your time on operational issues, fighting fires, you really should be thinking about the future, but yeah. We've got to get back to a point where we allow people who you want to come up with good ideas and do thinking and get stuff done properly, You've got to give them the space to do it. Well, to a certain extent, companies have outsourced that, right? They've outsourced that to startups um, and then they buy the startups afterwards mm. because they say, all right, we don't have time to think uh, we're spending all of our time, all of our energy on operational issues, fire, fires, and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's a startup that is meant to disrupt their entire business model. And they say, right, well, we can just buy that. And that's a way of 
yes, buying themselves out of trouble. Um, perhaps, if they're lucky, changing their own culture enough to absorb some of that startup culture. Um, but it still is ignoring the fundamental role that they have, and that's to think about the future, the longevity, the, you know, not the quarterly plan, but the, you know, five-year, ten-year plan of an organization. And, and that's, to me, the key role uh, of a leader. But genuinely speaking, no, very few leaders actually take the time um, to do that. And that's, frankly, um, uh, I guess from a business point of view, that uh, presents an opportunity for, for me because that's what I do. I spend a lot of time thinking. Um, but there's certain activities that we can do to, to foster that. You know, put in a digital detox day. Go on top of a mountain. You know, sit at a lake. Ignore your, put your iPhone in the closet for a day, for two days. Um, imagine the stuff that comes out of your mind when you are actually released from the operational pressures of day to day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, right, sorry, I, I took you on a bit of a tangent there. Um, was there anything else that you were involved with Allianz that uh, was motion related that you could discuss? Sure. Um, for a certain period of time, I ran their corporate university, um, uh, which is something completely unrelated to to, to motoring and, and, and automotive. But um, uh, it's important in the story in the sense that uh, I saw the importance of, 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 of learning and, and, and how vital it is for people to keep learning, to engage in lifelong learning, how in, in developing themselves. That's something I think that has stuck with me in the sense that when I do keynote speeches today, uh, I think it is part of the learning environment that companies need to foster. Either they send their staff to conferences or they bring people like me in for workshops and speeches um, to talk about you know, what the world will look like in Six months, six years, 16 years. How long were you at Alliance then? I was within the group for uh, just over 11 years. And then somewhere along the line, I started to have conversations with friends who are, who are still in automotive. And then other people as well, people who had started to work at Tesla, people who were involved in the robotics field, people who were uh, at the likes of Zipcar and things like that. And I said, boy, there's something brewing. There's something magical happening in this, in this industry uh, that I had left you know, 15 years earlier, but I'd still kept in touch with. And when an opportunity presented itself uh, at Allianz, uh, where uh, I was at the UK, uh, here in the UK at the time, and um, a couple of things changed, and, and I was asked uh, whether I would uh, uh, join Allianz back in Munich. I said, no, I actually, I'd like to stay in the UK um, and work on something that I'm truly and deeply passionate about that I see evolving. So I left and set up my consultancy um, initially to do some research and to do some consulting on this field. But um, having done a number of interviews in the field of electric, autonomous, and shared mobility, somehow or another, I, uh, I wrote a book. Um, I, j I jotted all of these interviews down and kind of put my thoughts together and 
well, published the book and gave it a gave it the title, The Mobility Revolution, and somehow that has stuck um, and has become a term, a thing now. Um, and I was asked to come speak on this phenomenon that I was describing in the book, and then I was asked after the speeches to consult a few companies on this phenomenon called the mobility revolution and well long story short a company grew out of it what were the um for anybody including myself here who doesn't know the the core principles what were the core principles of the the mobility revolution as you described them in your book well it had a subtitle zero emissions zero accidents zero ownership which um effectively said all transportation is going to move in the direction of electrification. We're going to reduce accidents through autonomy, through you know, self-driving uh, vehicle technology. And, and zero ownership is obviously the sharing economy and, and, and car sharing, ride hailing, uh, ride sharing, et cetera, et cetera. And I put this book out in uh, 2014. And at the time, all of my friends in the auto industry said, well, you're absolutely nuts, aren't you? And when people tell you you're crazy... You can either take it to heart and say, oh, yes, well, I must be crazy. Or you say, well, th there's something to this. Um, and, and fortunately, I did the latter and I kept pushing. Um, I said, uh, this, th this really is a thing. And then to my good fortune, about maybe eight, nine, ten months later, Word started to seep out that Google was working on a Google car and that Apple was beginning to work on a car and, you know, people started using Uber and, you know, Zipcar became a thing and uh, even though it had been, been around for 10 years. So all of a sudden, even my friends in the auto industry said, how did you know? And I said, well, look, I just, I just listen more. <laughs> and... I, because I hadn't been wrapped up in, you know, what we said earlier, the 80 to 90% of the operational uh, mumbo-jumbo, I was able to listen and just kind of put a couple of pieces together. And, and, and I think we see that now in the strategies that OEMs are adopting. So you have Daimler calls it CASE, Connected Autonomous Shared Electric. Uh, BMW, quite amusingly, calls it ACES, which is the same thing just in a different order. And um, General Motors calls it, uh, and quite flatteringly to me, calls it uh, zero emissions, uh, zero crashes, zero congestion. And I, in fact, had a funny chat with her head of PR about that. Um, uh, told him, I really like your three zeros idea. Uh, has anyone wish else? Wish I thought of that? that. I wish I thought of that. <laughs> yeah, so, you know. Three, four so years after. You send your check too. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, I think we can almost make it a drinking game as well now with all the <laughs> when the new ones come out. There's 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 an incredible alphabet of of acronyms, uh, you know, for for this, um, and everyone is, uh, is is jumping on this. I've heard. Well, I mean, that's actually a serious point. The 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 the, uh, the acronyms and the language is being used, uh, and I mentioned it earlier that. Uh, a lot of this is um, it is buzzword bingo that you you read a press release or you watch someone get up on stage and talk, particularly if they're from a company or whatever. They don't. Sometimes you can see they've just gone. Oh, what's the fill in that blank with some buzzword there? That'll do, and it's almost like a stitched together speech. 
where there's there's no real passion maybe there's a bit of belief but it's not driven in from a real understanding of what these words mean or they they think it means one thing when others mean you know virtually everybody else thinks it means something else uh, and i think that is a is a serious problem at the moment when it comes to mobility and the, the all the aspects that go up to to that get connected into that that it turns the public off quite often because it's like, oh god mobility but what does it what does it mean well you know what what does it mean to me and nobody's really explained it to me and stuff like that what do you think um asking the advisor in you uh what do you think uh could be done to better get the message across to say the public politicians companies you know everyone I think fundamentally we need to talk about the benefits, um, not just the societal benefits, but the individual benefits. A lot of uh, focus is on talking about pain points. Oh, yes, the climate is is changing. Yes, it is, and that's that's horrible. Um, uh, but that doesn't change my life on a day-to-day basis. Um, oh, cities are so congested and this is all horrible. Yes, they are, and we need to change that, but it doesn't – I don't see an end to that on a day-to-day basis. I think if you can address people with their everyday concerns, their everyday worries and say, look, we have a way that you getting to work is going to look very, very different. You're going to win time. You are going to be fundamentally uh, happier, healthier, uh, perhaps save a bit of money. Um, uh, Then you – begin to move people on a on a on a fundamental level do you think that's that this lack of ability to get it down to a personal level on other issues um but it has been so successful with say diesel and uh toxicity and dirty air at the moment that is very much has been in the in the um in the public psyche in the uk very much for the last 12 maybe 18 months do you think it's because people can really relate to that on an individual level i think i think there are certain things that um you can explain that are pain points you can say look we have an air quality problem in london uh 80 of schools in london are you know in uh high emission zones or in poor air quality zones and that hits people in a, in, a, in a very fundamental, painful way, um, and they begin to think about it. But thinking about it doesn't change anything, and not until you present alternatives. Mm. And the alternatives are only now beginning to roll out, right? People are bought diesel because that's what we had. These were the options. That was the tax beneficial option. We didn't have, we don't have, even to this day, enough choice in the way of electric vehicles. We don't have... Um, the flood of car sharing options in a place like London uh, that you have uh, in, in, in Berlin. Yes, of course, we have Uber um, in, 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 in London. Um, and, uh, and, and there's plenty of debate pro and con, but that does actually um, alter behavior. And I think that's one of the big issues that we need to alter behavior. Mm. Yeah, because that's interesting because when uh, the announcement of the not renewing Uber's license came out, there was a there was a lot of 
uh, on social media there was a lot of uh, noise um, of which people a lot of people were like oh for crying out loud what's going on here why why have they done that Ch- ignoring what the reasons were because they were going to be affected in a very direct way they had quickly adapted to a different way of getting around and right. then this was you know the way it was put in the press it was you know this this disappears at five o'clock tonight tough luck you know and that's not what the case is there are a few elements to that first of all yes people had already begun to change behavior and they were concerned uh, about their individual uh, fate if you will do i need to buy a car again do i need to renew my driving license do i need to actually um uh, uh, get a get a travel card because people had already made a change so you can see yes the reason there was this visceral reaction was um uh, because they had already changed behavior. The second piece is uh, because it showed off the, the power of cities, the power of cities to actually fundamentally change mobility behavior. The, the, the mayor of London uh, office and other mayor's office, they don't have that many levers available to them to change behavior. And, and mobility is a big one. That's one of the, you know, Transport for London is one of the big levers that mayor's office has to uh, enact change and change in the way of um, you know, car ownership, parking spots, uh, travel and congestion, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I, I was down in London uh, last week, and if I lived in London, particularly the inside the M25, I would struggle to justify owning a car because it would just seem it just seems too difficult. So I can so I can so. go on to I can go on to City Mapper right now from my office in London, and whether I want to get to Gatwick. Heathrow, Wembley, wherever I want to go, every almost every key location will be quicker uh, and certainly cheaper to get to by public transport. And when that is the case, people start to change their behavior. We have this notion of default car. People you know, reach in their pocket, get out the car keys because the car is a sunk cost. I have the car, so I might as well use it. Mm. But then they discover that, oh gosh, having this car actually is pretty expensive it's also pretty painful and frankly it's also not going to get me from a to b as quickly as if i used um other modes of transportation whether it be public transport or uber or or what have you that's a realization that people in the mega cities have certainly all over asia but uh, also in you know uh paris and london and even the um um uh other larger cities in, in, in Europe and certainly in the in the U.S., LA, yeah, not L.A., but San Francisco and, and, and Chicago and New York. It's getting rid of default car because the other options are very tenable, are very realistic, and they have a better balance of cost, comfort, and speed than, than the car does. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I can see that. I, it it doesn't. I it doesn't work here where I live now. But I am definitely out in the sticks, so that's understandable. And that's, to be honest, one of the one of the challenges that we have going forward, and it's uh, it's one of the potentials that we have as well. How do we make mobility as a service work? Uh, not just in big cities, but in mid-sized cities uh, and also rural areas. And I think this is where we can, for example, work together with, with real estate companies um, uh, that, that actually have something to gain by, making, um, by not putting in parking spots 
um, but instead offering uh, mobility options. And if we, you know, leverage local communities, real estate companies, and planners, uh, uh, then we can actually get mobility as a service as a proposition, even in in, in uh, smaller smaller communities. Yeah, I know. It, what it seems to come across from looking at the politicians uh, and how they legislate changes in their behaviour, because that's what they are doing. How they legislate it, and it, it they do. Uh, it looks like it's one level thinking a lot of the time. Like we we've got this problem problem X, and solution one will fix that because you know which invariably means charge people. How do you think we can get it that uh, that it it at least comes across <laughs> that there's more than just level one thinking that they are thinking of a bigger picture that they are thinking uh, you know that, that all these things are connected um, because. Uh, I'm sure I've bored you to tears by banging on about how, you know, with the London toxicity charge, where's things like um, encouraging people to work from home a number of days a week in business, giving businesses, a, you know, a, a break that way, or encouraging businesses to open much smaller satellite offices further out, which then helps sure. to create community because people are buying their lunches and blah, 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 blah. You know, not saying move the toxic stuff out but just let's try and you know a lot of the problem is that there is traffic so right. let's reduce the traffic in, in so so e economists would tell you that there's uh there's an entire field uh called uh, nudge economics basically mm -hmm. you you know what do you need to do to nudge people into a certain direction to change their behaviors what elements um can you uh interject that will make them think about alternatives, et cetera, et cetera. As a, as a consultant, we have our own models. Uh, the classic model is the Pestle model, so political, economic, social, and technological, legislative, and environmental changes. So making all of the various elements fit. In other words, yes, there's political pressure, but secondly, economics. Um, the economics of... Uh, electric cars are becoming very favorable. The economics of car sharing is very, very fav favorable. Social, social pressure. We will move into a world that owning a diesel is going to be like going out, you know, and, and smoking. Um, technological availability. So, um, you know, when electric cars are simply more fun to drive than everything else that's out there, uh, we've reached a, a real turning point. When we have um, you know, Uber, that's just much more convenient or any ride hailing for that matter, whether it's Lyft or, or Didi or Get or, or my taxi or whoever you have, um, is just more convenient than the status quo, then you are, you know, creating that mindset shift. So all of these things work in harmony to move people from the status quo to a new, a new reality. And then there are a couple of things that you need to a couple of habits that you need to break. And the first habit is when people, you know, give up their, their, their second car. And then the biggest habit is, of course, when they give up their first car, their default car, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that happens when they have a life-changing event, like moving to London, like, um, uh, you know, getting married, getting divorced, having kids, kids move out of the house, whatever is a life-changing event. Get, 
gets people to think about um, the choices and also their financial choices and the way they live their lives. Um, so if we can kind of get all of these political, economic, social, technological changes aligned so that when people have these life-changing events, they make a decision um, against default car, then I think we've made progress. Okay, that's interesting. Um, you've written three books, haven't you? Three books, yes. Yes. So the first one, uh, the Mobility Revolution, we've uh, you, you've mentioned. So what, what's the what was the next book you wrote, and how long did that take? The the next one uh, is called Corporate Mobility Breakthrough 2020. I was asked by a think tank that's uh, linked with uh, BNP Paribas, uh, uh, Leasing Arval, to write a book that talks about the mobility revolution from, um, from the context of fleets. Uh, what does it mean to commercial vehicle fleets, uh, uh, leasing companies, and, and, and that. So it is more specifically geared towards the fleet industry. Um, probably took another took another six months, uh, did a number of interviews for it, but a, a lot of the core thinking was already in the first book. The third... <laughs> it's a lot of tappity-tap. <laughs> well, it's it's not six months uh, at a piece. Uh, no, it's... no, I know. <laughs> but yeah, it's still, still impressive getting that out. Um, and the third book is called uh, Smart City, Smart Mobility, which... Uh, quite pleased with it's now being uh, released in italian french and german as well and and it talks about the interrelationship between mobility and cities uh, and they are absolutely and intrinsically linked if you imagine a city to be this human body right where you have the maybe you have the city government as the brains of the operation and then you have a whole bunch of sensors and cameras and things that's kind of the the sensory network the you know, the, the feel, the eyes and the ears mm-hmm. of the city. And then you have this circulatory system, right? The circulatory system that makes sure that all the appendages are supplied with blood and air and all of this. That's your road infrastructure, above ground uh, and, and, and below ground infrastructure. And that's your mobility network. When the circulatory system comes to a standstill, the body dies. A city cannot survive without a well-functioning mobility infrastructure. And that includes everything, all the bits and pieces, whether that's buses and trains and trams and and drones and cars and uh, shuttles and and whatever you have to make it work well. And so many cities are suffering from very near cardiac arrest, and, 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 and that's why they are kind of getting on the treadmill and getting fit. And that's why I call it smart cities and smart mobility. Do you think, because this is something I've thought about for a little while now, do you think cities now are more powerful than governments Absolutely. when it comes to transport? Absolutely, not just when it comes to transport. There's a certain disillusionment with, uh, with national governments at, uh, at the moment, and you can certainly see that uh, almost, almost across the board, but certainly in the big, uh, in the big nations where you have... Um, weakened national governments or national governments in a state of gridlock and people turn to what's close. People turn to what impacts them more Uh, and what impacts them more is local activity, local regulation, local decision making. 
So they get engaged at the local level, um, and that's why you have mayors now. And there's uh, there's there's actually wonderful wonderful series of books and a bunch of thinking on this. You know when. Um, uh, are, are mayors becoming, you know, the next presidents, and 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 the likes of um, Anne Hidalgo certainly in Paris, but uh, to a lesser extent uh, as well, Sadiq uh, Khan, but 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 quite obviously former mayor uh, Bloomberg uh, from the New York are incredibly powerful in making policy that has a much greater impact on even the automotive industry now than um, than what national governments are doing. If you think about the congestion charge uh, and the toxicity charge, that has a much greater impact on um, auto industry policy, certainly in the UK, than does whether or not we have an emissions limit of 120, 110, or 90 90 grams. Um, Because it means that if you can fundamentally not even drive into London anymore, Unless you have an electric vehicle or unless you pay uh, an extreme premium, then you start to look at alternatives much more than if you just say, well, okay, I'll just get a different car. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that's possibly one of the bigger threats for OEMs at the moment is there there is a potential danger that um, these cities will... I mean, they are instigating legislation. It's a blind spot. But they may they may go off and do it in sl- slightly different ways, which makes it harder for OEMs to to meet all the needs. Absolutely, it's a blind spot. Uh, there are two hundred different different city entry restrictions across Europe right now, um, and they are weight based, emissions based, uh, congestion charges at different levels, etc. So. Cool. I'm glad I don't have that spreadsheet to work out the next, you know, next BMW coming OEMs, out. <laughs> exactly. OEMs need to think about all of these different regulations, and really, there's a, a big challenge in finding the common denominator. Luckily for them, the common denominator is, in fact, reducing uh, the level of emissions towards zero, um, and that at least makes it a little bit easier to you know, develop product for, for all the cities. Yes, cities are extremely powerful um, and uh, they are making policy. You can see it in uh, the COP21, COP23 agreements that we have uh, where the cities have gotten together um, and made agreements on top of whatever the, the national governments have done. Yeah. What do you see then? Sorry, I'm going to go slightly, change slightly here. What do you think is the... Uh, and as much as you can, because uh, I, I realize the the smart answer is depends on a lot of this. But what do you think is the ideal vision of mobility for the future? First of all, let me be clear that um, I think there's different types of mobility. One is utility mobility, and the other is still that there is something remaining that is a passion for driving. I started this conversation saying that I love cars and I still do. And I think there's a, there's plenty of space for the fun of driving and there's plenty of cars that provide that fun as well. So I, I never actually want that to go away. Um, contrary to what some people might think. Um, (laughs) but in terms of, um, utility mobility, 
you're absolutely right. Yes, it depends. It depends on the infrastructure. It depends on the starting point. If you stand on the street corner in London and watch vehicles go by and you just count the occupants, I would argue you're going to get to an average number of occupants of probably, I don't know, five to ten, maybe fifteen, because you have a lot of buses going by, you have um, taxis with multiple occupancy, and, and, and actually quite a f- quite few privately owned vehicles. You do the same exercise in the U.S., I don't know, in Kansas City, and you're going to come up with an average of 1.1 or something like that. So in the U.S., anything that you do to get from 1.1 to 2 or three people per vehicle. In other words, uh, shared taxis, even car sh- uh, ride sharing, you know, get people to, to pool on their way to work. That's already progress. Uh, in a city like London, where you already have a great deal of sharing going on, and this a- applies to most big cities, um, the starting point is a different one. So, so uh, even if we talk about um, you know, self-driving shuttles, uh, the likes of Navia or Easy Mile and things like that. That's actually not an improvement in terms of a congestion point of view for a city like London. It certainly is an improvement in other cities. Um, and that's only because our starting point is a high degree of sharing. So, yes, it depends. If you take a look at the airline industry, we still feel pretty good about somebody being seated behind a bunch of buttons when we walk into an airplane. That is until we learn that those people with stripes on their shoulders cause 60 to 70% of the um, uh, aircraft accidents. We'd be better off not actually having pilots. And in the same sense, we are going to get that to that point in on-road transport as well. Do you think so? Because I'm, 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 I'm still unsure that we can if we have human drivers on the road that we can have uh, a computer able to deal with other humans on the road I, i've yet to see that be borne out i can i can see it in dedicated lanes i can see it on dedicated roads i can see it where the humans in, in sections are you no human driver is allowed in these bits this can only be an autonomous vehicle area and I can see that because they'll be speaking to each other. They'll know what's going on. That there is, you know, communication going on. It's it's an easier environment to control. As soon as you chuck us humans in, it becomes incredibly uh, difficult to anticipate because we do daft things. You're right. Humans are unpredictable. Uh, they cause a lot of accidents, uh, and really, we should uh, move towards. A time and a space where humans are no longer uh, doing the driving. But until we get to that point, yes, we are stuck with what we call a hybrid environment of robots and humans driving. Um, and we need to get the robots to adapt to the humans and not the humans to adapt to the robots. Um, I think that's the core work that is going on right now to get the uh, autonomous vehicle systems to um, understand human actions to think the way that humans do and if you just take a look at uh, Moore's law the processing capability but also the um, understanding uh, or or the the, the level of progress and understanding happening in AI research uh, we will get to that point I'm I'm very confident 
the short answer is it depends on where you starting point and it depends uh, on what people are and from that starting point we mean infrastructure and where how people normally go about their their movement anyway so like you were saying in london it's um buses are often so people are much more used to that sort of sharing whereas in say just randomly kansas city it is individuals in cars almost uh, and that's that so it's a it's a changing culture as well slightly in mindset that uh that needs to happen to help the the full advantages of mobility to be realized correct yeah, that's right okay i have understood that correctly excellent excellent okay um i would like to move on to the quick fire questions if that's okay now so I'll move on to the first one, which is uh, what currently excites you most about the motoring world? The speed of change, um, the number of things that are coming together, um, the creativity that's being unleashed uh, in engineers. And it is almost as if we've let a genie out of the bottle and we've enabled designers, engineers, developers, uh, business development folks to uh, literally mm, – create a new world and that is massively exciting okay excellent yeah it, it is uh it, it is a very exciting time to be involved whether um it's going down exactly the route that people want it to go down or not uh depending which is always depends on the point of view um it is really exciting to see what is being what boundaries are being pushed and what things are being done that that is yeah. true um so what currently worries you about the motion world then um, those that are pushing against change or that are reluctant to embrace change. I suppose that extends outside of the uh, motoring world uh, as well. Uh, it means uh, in a time of disruption uh, like this that we are going to see um, probably anywhere between a third and half of the current OEMs fail uh, in the next 10 years, and with fail, I mean that they're going to be absorbed, bought up, consolidated, um, uh, or, or, or else. Uh, and that means that there are you know, human fate and careers uh, at stake here, and I find that a bit um, unfortunate. Um, but so it is. So it is in a transition uh, because with it come lots and lots of new companies, lots and lots of new ideas and new um, uh, developments. Mm, yeah, it, it is. That is true. Uh, change. There's always a bit of pain, isn't there? There is. Uh, okay. What has been your favourite car to drive, and why was that? I have had the pleasure of driving so many great cars. I've driven Ferraris. I've driven the high-end AMGs and the M products. I've driven the Corvettes. Uh, you know, I've driven an you know uh, an M5 at 150 mile per hour on a on an Autobahn. That's an experience. But you know, <laughs> yes, I can imagine. If somebody's yeah, it doesn't look in the mirror. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, uh, but even uh, but even. Uh, now a Tesla Model S in terms of acceleration is, is maddening. I mean, it's really, really a pleasure. But the most fun vehicle I've I've actually owned, um, and this is probably a bit bit of an oddball. If you remember, there BMW had a 325Ti. It was a three series compact, mm -hmm. um, and this was one of the cars that I owned while I was at BMW. And I remember I would uh, drive on uh, these uh, these mountain roads. Uh, between 
Germany and Italy. There's uh, there's two that I can uh, remember. One is called the Jaufenpass, and the other is the Timmelsjoch, which is uh, uh, these these mountain roads where with 60 or, or 80 turns, and you're never really going any faster than um, probably 50 miles an hour uh, between the turns, and you're really you know making the the engine howl and the brakes, uh, 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 you know, s- smoke uh, with, with, with any vehicle. And it's such great fun. And, and it was this, this, you know, tiny three series with a massively powerful straight six engine. And it was great fun because I had absolutely no feelings of guilt about it because it was just designed for, for, um, Getting tossed around, and I did the same thing in a in a in a, in a Z3 a, a, a Z3, and and that was good fun. The other car that I'm truly very passionate about, that I would love to own again at some point, uh, is do you remember the BMW Z1? Mm-hmm. Right, the doors that would slide down into the into the chassis. Yep. What a fun car that was! It was a beautiful car, and to this day, I think if you put it out there, you would say it's a, it's entirely modern. Yeah, because it, it it that seemed to be near the end of when manufacturers experimented a bit. I think that's come back a little bit for some of them, but there was a there was certainly a period because of the economic issues uh, across the globe that, that hatches were battened down and experimenting with a. You know, just a, a, a fun, different, quirky car that all got right. knocked on the head, and that was definitely, that was definitely it. Because I actually, you mentioned that earlier this week, there was a Wheeler Dealers where they got one, and they did they did one up. So uh, uh, I do remember the Z one really well. Now, now you say it, yeah. Okay, then I'm going to go to the other end of the spectrum. Then, what has been your least favorite car to drive? Why was that? Well, pretty much any of the any of the first uh, first cars I owned. Uh, I mentioned. The- <laughs> You know, I mentioned these big American. So it's not it's not fond memories of your first cars. Well, well, I mean, yeah, yes, but not, but but not because of the driving experience. <laughs> uh, no, there were um, there were a number of very utilitarian uh, reasons to own those cars, and and you know the car that I would uh, drive around uh, at university was this, you know, five door hatchback uh, Mercury um, uh, front wheel drive uh, thing that you know there was you know no nothing genuinely pleasant about driving it but it got me from a to b and yes. i think it was you know what most people would today experience as utility mobility mm. got your freedom yeah that's true <laughs> okay then, uh, what car would you like to own next um well i talk about zero ownership so i think it would be a uh, foolish for me to talk about uh, uh, owning cars because... Uh, no, again, no, it's okay. You're going to be in an ivory tower away from the rest of us. It's fine. It's <laughs> fine. Is there a car? That would be horrible. Um, I, think, I think the only car that I would own at this point is is something that I would have again for, for pleasure. And I, I, I use this, I've used this analogy for years and, and others have come to use it now uh, as well. You know, um, we, we don't take our horses to work anymore, but some people still love riding. And, and uh, in that sense, I would love, you know, to have one of these classic, uh, classic vehicles um, that, that kind of changed, changed the path of path of automobility. Mm. Uh, but I, genuinely don't have a need for a car because I, 
and I use the full spectrum of, of mobility as a service as it is, car sharing, ride sharing, ride hailing, uh, public transport, and all of that. And it works pretty well for me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, before you were shuttled around everywhere, what was your favorite road to drive on? <laughs> yeah, I think I mentioned that uh, earlier, these, uh, these mountain roads yeah. um, between, between Germany and Austria, which, which are just incredible amounts of fun. And, uh, and leaving that aside, of course, uh, on a Sunday morning, the Autobahn is still really good fun to drive on as well. Mm, excellent. Uh, I need to try both. Both of those areas, absolutely. I have not um, yet. Um, what is the most pointless optional extra you've had the misfortune to experience? The most painful uh, option? Well, I, thinking back on the early set navs that were manufacture installed, they were around 7,000 euro or some... I mean, they were ridiculously <laughs> expensive now that we obviously have them as free apps on our phone. Um, I wouldn't say it was pointless because I remember, you know, having a sat-nav installed in my Mini Cooper uh, somewhere around 2004, and I thought it was the greatest thing uh, on earth because all of a sudden I wasn't this grumpy, dangerous driver looking at the map on the one <laughs> hand and then trying to drive on the other hand. Um, so it, I, I would argue that the sat-nav is... is you know, uh, changed my whole driving behavior. But um, the fact that it had cost a fortune previously is, is, is quite amusing now. And then the updates. I remember working with a, a, a chap, uh, one of the partners of the company, and he had an A8, and mm. he wanted to get the sat-nav updated, and they were going to charge him two and a half grand for the CDs he then had to right. install himself. Right. And he right. started to go, wow, okay. <laughs> You know, he said, I'll just pick my phone up and, <laughs> as you say, you know, find or go and get a TomTom for 120 quid or something like that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, then um, the penultimate question now, uh, which is, who do you think I should talk to after you? Don't pin me down on this one, uh, but I'll be happy to provide you at least two or three other names that are going to pres- present some interesting insights for you. Okay, excellent. We, we, can, we can chat offline on that one. That's excellent. Yeah. Okay. Um, right. Well, uh, the last question, just before I say thank sure. you, uh, is uh, what are the best ways for people to follow what you do, um, learn more about the stuff, maybe book you to speak or uh, advise them, etc.? Well, first of all, it'd be a, a real treat and a pleasure um, uh, to have people follow me via Twitter. That's L Neckerman, N-E-C-K-E-R-M-A-N-N. Um, second of all, people can follow me on LinkedIn as well. Um, I use the two media a bit differently. Some of the more in-depth stuff I put on LinkedIn and some of my just uh, random quick thoughts I, I put on Twitter. Uh, third of all, people can go on my website, www.neckermann.net, uh, would also find my email address uh, and all of that. So it would be wonderful to engage with, uh, with your listeners, and I'm really uh, pleased, I'd be really pleased if some of my followers have been listening into this. Let me know if you have. Yeah, I will put links to all those in the show notes as ever. Uh, anyone who listens regularly will know. Um, and so it just leaves me to say thank you so much for coming on. This, this has been brilliant because, like I said at the top of the show, uh, and I said a couple of times in it, uh, mobility is being bandied around and it is being used where I didn't think it was appropriate and it's being watered down uh, and it has a, we have a real risk of 
losing the opportunity to do some uh, do some interesting things uh, and and at least start discussions in interesting possibilities um so it was great to get you on to so you could help explain to me and to the listeners exactly what mobility you think mobility is and what it could mean to us all so uh, thank you so much for your time i really do appreciate it lucas it's been a great pleasure thanks a lot andrew thanks once again to lucas for coming on review and chatting to me i hope you found our conversation as fascinating as i did if you would like to suggest someone i should ask to come on this show please do get in touch if you use the hashtag RearViewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it here in Motoring Podcast Towers. To get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. And if you like to keep up to date with motoring news, opinions and car reviews, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. Remember, you can support everything we do at Motoring Podcast in a couple of ways. Please go to motoringpodcast.com forward slash support to see what they are. I would also really appreciate it if you could tell others about this show. I want as many people as possible to hear the stories of these great people that come on here. So until next time, that was Lucas Neckerman, I've been Andrew Clues, and safe motoring.